Okay, uh, are you guys ready to witness a miracle? I'm going to preach through two chapters, and we're going to be out of here by noon. So that's going to be a miracle. You can, it's okay to laugh. I know. I know what you say. Um, we are beginning our journey in the book of Job this morning, and so we'll cover the first two chapters. And as I put in the devotional as a disclaimer, we're not going to be able to cover every jot and tittle in the book of Job. Uh, there's no way you could do it in one sermon series. In fact, there's one guy who tried um, in England. He preached almost through the book of Job. It took, I think, on the order of 38 years, and God got tired of hearing him talk about Job, and he killed him. And so, uh, so you know, you can go too far with this if you're not careful, but it's a, it's a beautiful book, and my hope is that it will serve to equip us, the saints, with the truth of God's sovereignty, and for us to learn way, maybe some ways in which we view our relationship with God in a mechanistic or utilitarian or retribution principle fashion. Those are going to be key terms. So let me define them. Utilitarian just means that it's, it's just a means to an end, right? So if we have a utilitarian view of our relationship with God, then it's just that he's just kind of a cosmic candy machine that's there to give us stuff when we need it. Well, I don't know that God appreciates such a view. The mechanistic view is much the same kind of way. It's that, you know, if you do good things, then good things happen to you. If you do bad things, then bad things happen to you. It's all one-to-one ratio, and, and that's just the way it works, right? No, it doesn't. Psalm 73 is wrestling with it. The entire book of Job is wrestling with this idea that the way we thought it ought to work, it actually doesn't turn out to work exactly that way. The retribution principle is much the same as the mechanistic view. It's all saying the same thing as that you get back what you put in, right? You, you reap exactly what you sow. How many of you, given all of your good deeds, would want to, at the end of time, sow only for that? To reap only for those good deeds? Well, that sounds like what Muslims believe, in fact, is the retribution principle. And so what Job is going to teach us is not the answer for suffering or evil. In fact, how many of us have gone to this book trying to seek an answer because we were suffering? We're like, there's got to be an answer in here somewhere, right? And so we go to Job and we, like Job, walk away not being told why. Why the innocent suffer? Why, uh, why certain things happen? We don't get told exactly why. But what we do get is what is most important is how to relate to the Lord our God in a new and beautiful and amazing transformed way. And that is my hope because if you think in 13 weeks I'm going to unpack the problem of evil, then you have no earthly idea about that subject. There's no way to do it. In fact, we won't unpack it in this lifetime. We will not unpack and answer every question that comes, all the whys, all the hows. What we, what we can do is stick to the scriptures and say, all right, Lord, what are you saying to us through this word that you've given? Job is a beautiful and complex work of art. And it's difficult. The language itself is not even exactly Hebrew. Uh, many scholars refer to it as Jobian, whatever it is. And so there's a, uh, certain places where it's, it's, it's very, very difficult to translate. And there's many kind of issues. But even with all of that being said, even in the poetic nature of it all, there's a very clear message. And that, that is God is good and he is sovereign and he can be trusted even when we don't know why. And that's, uh, yeah, I did hear an amen. Thank you. 
And so um, that's good news to us. But uh, we all come to the book of Job with a significant amount of baggage, don't we? Like our, our wrestlings with un, uh, understanding why we suffer. Maybe you're in a very personal place of suffering right now that doesn't make any sense to you and the mystery of God is shrouded to you and you, you can't see past the hand in front of your face right now. Maybe you've been in circumstances and situations where there's just, it's just inexplicable. I've quoted this before. But David Attenborough, for those of you who are familiar with um, PBS, uh, he was the guy who used to do this stuff on birds, and he did all of this study on, on birds. He's British. And he, one time somebody asked him about his belief in God. He said, you cannot tell me that God is good if he is the one who created the worm that crawls into the little boy's eye who just needs clean drinking water, and it blinds him. Tell me, did your good God create that worm? That's a pretty tough question, isn't it? And we could, we could get all hard-nosed and kind of uh, punch back at him in true Calvinistic style, but that's not what really David Attenborough is asking, is it? Really what David Attenborough is saying is, I don't trust him. And, and, and if I can't understand everything as a finite being, if I can't understand the infinite, then I will not trust him. And so we too bring baggage to this book, don't we? We, too, have certain understandings and ways of approaching things. We're going to, some of you are really going to buck when God calls Job righteous. No man is righteous. <laughs> some of you are going to see Job's friends as just a bunch of jerks who have no earthly idea what they're talking about. And they're, they're not, really. They're, they're trying to help a friend through a difficult circumstance. And, yes, they get some things very wrong. And, yes, they push harder and harder. And they, they do get off the rails. And they do cease to love Job in the way that they probably should. But that's not where they started. So let us be careful as we enter into this book that we recognize some of our own baggage, our own prejudices that we bring to the book that maybe the book is not even addressing or speaking to. Let's let the book that the Lord gave us through the power of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of God's word, let it speak and say what it ought to say. It's very connected all throughout Scripture. We're going to read stuff that we, we're going to recognize. Man, this is, all over, this is all over Scripture. It seems even to be contradicting what some other Scriptures are saying almost. Well, that's only true if the Lord our God is mechanistic, if he is bound by even the rules that have been set up for him. Well, straight away, that doesn't sound good. So, as we enter in, let us be careful. And also know that uh, I've studied this book quite a bit, but by no means am I an expert. So you may have some questions about various things along the way. Um, I would love for us to be able to continue in dialogue. If, you, if you're struggling with something, by all means, email me. Let's get together. Let's talk about it because there's going to be some tough parts. And there's going to be some things I just can't get to because in covering two chapters or covering the swath of material that has to be covered, we're just not going to be able to answer everything. And so, but if you have further questions about it, I, I have been reading it a significant amount of material over a number of about 10 or 12 years. And so would love to talk to you more about it if there's something you're wrestling with internally. Okay. All right. With all that being said, all that preamble, let's turn to the text and talk about Job. First and foremost, the key truth from this morning's sermon is that God alone is sovereign and truly good, which sets us free to glorify God even when we are suffering and don't know why. Let me read that again. God alone is sovereign and truly good, which sets us free to glorify God even when we are suffering and don't 
know why. As we open this, I have a question for you. If, if you could, be, could describe yourself, which is probably not the wisest thing to do, but if you had somebody who, who knew you well could describe you in just a couple of sentences, what do you think would be written? What, what, what do you think would be, let's go even further. Let's, let's not somebody who even really loves you, but just somebody who has to deal with you on a regular basis, maybe a coworker or a neighbor or someone like that. If I were to go to them and I were to say, hey, uh, I'd like for you just in a couple of sentences, just describe Joe Schelling for me. What do you think they would write? What do you think they would say? What would you like for them to write? What would you like for it to say? I don't think we think about that oftentimes is that what, what really is thought about us, how we're coming across. What's interesting about the book of Job is how he's described. So I'm going to turn to the text. Uh, we don't have this as part of the sermon, but I do think it's important to read it uh, as part of our introduction so you know who he is. Listen at Job 1, 1 through 5. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil. I want you to notice a couple of things straight away. Who are his parents? What's his lineage? How many times is someone introduced in the scriptures and they are given no lineage whatsoever? Not very often at all. One of just a few times that this happens. So what this tells us straight away is it's not about who Job's parents are. It's about who Job is. And how Job is described is in these superlatives. And he's a very blessed man. If we were to read on, we would see that he has all kinds of, of livestock. He's got children. And if you also notice, which I'm not big on getting into numbers too much, but everything adds up to 10, which is evidence of God's blessing, this, this evidence of perfection that he has all that he could possibly need as a result of him being blameless and upright and always turning from evil. Does this mean that Job is perfect? Because this is where we all stumble out of the gate if we're not careful. Now, how we know that this means that is, he's not perfect is because these same words are used to describe some other folks in the Bible. Noah. Was Noah perfect? Well, there was that little incident in the vineyard, so to speak. Well, how about Jacob? Jacob was described the same way. The deceiver, was he perfect? No. Abraham was described in the same way. Tell me, did he lie about who his wife was to try to protect himself because he wasn't real sure about the sovereignty of God? Did he maybe take some matters into his own hands when God said, I'll give you a son? And the years kind of went by and all of a sudden he's like, well, man, this ain't working out. Maybe we should go with plan B, Hagar. So these men that are described in the same way, these patriarchs are not in any way, shape, or form perfect. And so you will stumble summarily if straight away you think that Job is being described as someone who is perfect. Because that's going to tangle you up really quickly when he starts to show his imperfections as his suffering drags on and on and on. So Job is trustworthy and he's honest and he's got great integrity but by no means is he a perfect man but a wonderful thing and way to be described is it not and so Job many suggest because no lineage is listed and because he's from the land of Uz may in fact be a Gentile king of some sort that's 
not necessarily consequential to us. Either way, he worships and sacrifices to the Lord our God. If we were to read on in this text, we would see that he, every, with, with great continuity, he sacrifices on behalf of his children. In fact, sometimes he sacrifices double just in case they messed up a little bit extra. Many of you parents understand this idea. And so Job was a very faithful man for him to do it with continuity. So he, he is someone that we would, in fact, look up to. James speaks well of him. He's spoken well of in Ezekiel. Now, the question of historicity. I'm going to presuppose he's a real guy. Uh, and there's many scholars who argue that maybe it's a folktale, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. It's just got too much reality in it. And we're really going to see this when we get into the speeches. And Job starts to say some of the things that I know you and I know I have said to the Lord our God. And so these speeches are just too earthy and too real for them to just be made up, as it were. Either way, here's what I do know. It's God's word and it's instructive to us. Parable or no. Okay? All right. So, with all that being said, here we have a man who is faithful and who has everything that he could possibly need in this world. And he is about to enter into one of the darkest seasons of his life. What's troubling, I think, to us about the book of Job is this is not a nation going into exile. This is a man. See, it's a lot easier when you can hide in numbers. But what's so disarming about Job is that God comes for one. And he deals with one. And so for us, that's a very frightening thing to not have the protection of the rest of those around us. And so Job has everything he needs. He's a great guy. In fact, Patrick, Patrick Henry Reardon, who's an Orthodox, uh, Eastern Orthodox priest, says this of Job in his book, The Trial of Job. He says, the first chapter of Job describes him, in fact, as the embodiment of the ideals held in the first psalm. Job is the embodiment of the prosperous, just man held up as a model in the book of Proverbs. So Job is everything you would think of when you read Psalm 1. Interesting that we read that this morning. Everything you would think of when you read the book of Proverbs, he is the embodiment of all those things. That's really important for us to understand as things start to unfold. Let's turn to the text that we really want to focus on, verses 6 through 12. And if you would hear God's word this morning. <clears throat> now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but... Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, there is a whole lot of stuff within these just six verses that we could get tangled up in really quick, but let's make sure we understand clearly what it's saying before we get worried about the questions that we have about just, hey, how in the world does Satan show up before God and all that stuff? So we're getting a glimpse into the eternal throne room and the inner workings. We don't get many in the Bible of these things. And so this is a day in which the sons of God who are angels are presenting themselves before the Lord. Now, what is that? I have no idea. However, I do know that that indicates that the sovereign Lord cares about the workings of his creation, that he would call his angels to account to him what is going on. Does it mean that he's not omniscient? Not at all. It means that he's making sure that they who are not omniscient are doing what they need to be doing so as to preserve what is his. What's interesting, you may note, is that Satan clearly stands out from among them because he recognizes him straight away. He says to him, Satan. Now, in the text, if any of you have any background on the book of Job, it doesn't say Satan. It says the Satan, the Satan, which is the adversary. Now, is this somebody different than Satan? No. It's, it's the same embodiment. So the fact that he calls him the adversary is just a further clarification of what his role is. He's not there to present anything good to the Lord. He is there, in fact, to seek what he can destroy. But what's interesting is that God calls him out and makes him answer to him. So what does that tell us about Satan? Under whose power does he rest? God's. That's really important for us because there's a lot of bad theology about Satan that goes on out there. Matthew O'Sullivan and I were just talking the other night about a book called The Devil Wears Nada. And so, and so there, in, in this professor that uh, I think was at your school at Hillsdale, no, uh, never mind, I messed that part up. Don't worry about that. But this guy wrote this book, uh, essentially trying to deal with all of the misperceptions that we have about Satan. And we've got many, by the way. We give him way more credit than he's due. We do far more of his work for him than he actually is able to do, actually. And so we, in our distorted understanding of Satan, actually become his tool. So Satan, who is clearly different than the sons of God, who is called out by God and must answer to him, he asks him, where have you been? Notice what he says, and this is reminiscent of 1 Peter 5. I have been wandering to and fro. Remember how Peter describes him as the roaring lion who goes about seeking to destroy and kill that which is outside the hedge of the protection of the Lord. So he was wandering the earth seeking to destroy things. There's other good news. God offers up Job. Why? Because Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. You know how some people say, don't say it because Satan hears it and then he'll get you. You go saying you enjoyed something. He's right there to destroy your life. Um, I don't know why that voice, uh, no disrespect. <laughs> To whomever that sounded like. So, um, but, but, but do understand that, that Satan doesn't know all, right? He, he's not able to be everywhere at once. Yes, he's got a legion of demons that do work on his behalf. Yes, he is not someone that you want to toy with. No, you are not going to charge hell with a water pistol and do him any damage. Understand that, yes, he's powerful, but he's not all powerful. He can hurt you, but he cannot take more than what God allows him to take from you. 
If God is not sovereign, then you need to understand that this being who is as powerful as Satan is, if God is not able to control him and tell him how far he will go, he will destroy everything in his path, including you and your children and everything that you want. So praise God, even though it's mysterious, that he controls how far Satan can go. Now you may say, well, I wish he'd control him a little better than he does. Well, that's between you and him. And I've thought the same thing too. So we need to understand that Satan is limited, significantly limited. So why in the world would God offer up Job? Because Job had done something wrong to make God mad. Maybe he should have sacrificed three times instead of two. You think that was it? Why does God offer up one of his finest? Because of Job's faith. Because of Job's obedience. Because of Job being a good man. Why did he offer Christ? Why did he take all that was glorious in heaven and take and offer it on the cross? Why would he take his son and bend him to the point that he would say, Father, why have you forsaken me? That in the garden he would push him to the brink where he would say, May this cup pass from me, sweating great droplets of blood. See, for those of you who are not very good Christians, this is actually probably pretty good news to you. Because Satan doesn't care about you. You're already there. It's the ones who actually try to live it out that he is, in fact, infuriated with and seeks to destroy. But it is the ones who have faith and are bolstered and endure in Christ, in union with Christ and the power of the Spirit, who actually are the ones who will actually endure. See, you're only attacked because what God is doing in you. You're only under attack because of how God is transforming you more into the very image of Christ whom he did not spare. This is not the fun stuff, by the way, is it? But we skip all of the passages about suffering and we just can't do it. God won't let us. And so God offers up Job because he knows exactly what he will do with Job. And he knows exactly what Satan will not do with Job. Because he is the one who is omnipotent. He is the one who is omniscient. He is the one who is sovereign, not Satan. Notice how Satan attacks God. Think about this for a second. Have any of you ever gone to and met with a dignitary of some kind? In that meeting with a dignitary, did you come in and say, <laughs> I can't really believe they chose you. <laughs> You are a pitiful sort. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know how this works, but okay, I'll bow. So Satan comes in and he says, God, does Job love you for, fear you for nothing? Man, take away all that he has and here's what I can guarantee you. You aren't worth the suffering. Your glory, who you are, is pitiable to your creation. Strip away your hedge and what you will find, God, is that you, you are worthless. That's what Satan is saying here, by the way. 
And Satan is saying that our relationship to God is utilitarian, that it's mechanistic, that it is all driven by the means justifying the ends, that God is the means by which we get what we want, health, wealth, prosperity, and so forth. Now, let me be clear about something here. Does God not give good gifts to his children? But he does. Does God not bless sometimes financially? Oh, yeah, he does. But does he do it according to your actuarial science? No, he doesn't. And praise God he doesn't because oftentimes his giving is to those who deserve it the least. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. So Satan is attacking the very foundation of who God is. He's attacking us and saying that you, we, all of us are nothing more than automatons. Strip away all that we think is good and we're pitiful. We'll, we'll dissolve. That is the critical question that you must keep in view as we unpack the book of Job. Does Job fear God? Do you fear God for nothing? So the question that we have before us is, why do you love and fear God? You ever thought about it? Or do you just accept it as some sort of foregone conclusion that you don't need to periodically kind of think back through and do a checkup on yourself just to say, hey, where am I in this? Now, am I saying that you need to constantly kind of whip yourself scarred? Absolutely not. That's why the beauty of the spirit and the application, ongoing work and sanctification of the person and work of Christ is so important to us. But we need to ask the question, why, why do I fear and love God? Is it for nothing? And it's as I've said to you before, for many of us, your lack of devotion over the last year, month, week, days, your lack of prayer over the last week, month, years, days, you have no earthly idea what it's setting you up for. Notice how Job's devotion set him up well for what's coming. Now, it's not going to be pretty, but what we will see is that in the end, what he speaks of God is in fact, by God's own discussion, ultimately right. We're going to have to navigate that some as we walk through some of his speeches. And so, we have to ask ourselves, do we struggle in our religion to make God a means to an end? Do, do we struggle in some way to see God as a cosmic candy machine, as the, the one who is, uh, it's his job to bless us because we're such a big deal? Or do we see that the true end, the true, mean, the true end of all this is God himself? That we would, at long last, as we were created to be the image in which we have been fashioned, we could at long last stand unfettered, un, uh, uh, able to see the fullness of God's glory. See, that is the true end. And nothing more, because nothing gold can stay. Because nothing that we create is going to last. It doesn't, does it? Think about all of the beautiful architecture that in World War II was absolutely decimated because of man's lust for blood. Think about all the civilizations that have risen and fallen, never to be heard from again, or maybe just some dig site that we can't even begin to understand. Just covered in dirt. 
There must be something more. There must be a greater reason. If you want to hear this quote from Gustavo Gutierrez, um, he is a Latin American Catholic liberation theologian. That means he's dangerous at some level, probably. However, what he does say about Job, I find very compelling, and he gets this part right. Listen to what he says. <laughs> the author is telling us in this way that a utilitarian religion lacks depth and authenticity. In addition, it has something satanic about it. Do you hear what he just said? He's saying if you have turned God into a means for your ends, you are in legion with Satan. You are doing exactly what he said you would do. You fear God for nothing. He goes on to say, the expectation of rewards that is at the heart of the doctrine of retribution vitiates vitiates the entire relationship. That means it just tears it apart and plays the demonic role of obstacle on the way to God. In self-seeking religion, there is no true encounter with God, but rather the construction of an idol. So if God is your cosmic candy machine, then he is an idol that can't hear you, that cannot speak to you, that cannot save you, that can do nothing for you except what you deem and you don't know. You don't know what's best for you. I don't care what you think. And the longer you go and the older you get, you should learn that in greater measure. Amen? So, what we see here, Satan is not all-powerful. Satan is not all-knowing. Satan accuses us of being utilitarian. Satan hates us. Satan, more importantly, hates God more than he hates you. You are a speed bump. Let's turn back to the text, verses 20 through 22. So the part that we're going to skip is where it unfolds what happens to Job. And I'll just summarize this briefly. Essentially, everything that you would have read about in verses 2 through 5 that was part of his blessedness absolutely gets destroyed. It gets destroyed layer by layer. So he keeps having people come to him and say, this has been destroyed. This has been taken away. Interestingly, in the middle of all this destruction, the fire of God comes down from heaven and consumes the sheep. Now that's a very interesting thing that fire comes down from heaven to consume the sheep because that seems to be an offering and a sacrifice of some kind, which is preparing the way for Job to be offered up. And so Job has just gotten all of this bad news and listen at how he responds. Starting in verse 20. Then Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So the first test that Satan hurls at Job to prove that he fears God for nothing, notice Job passes. Job is able to worship even in the midst of losing everything he had, including his seven sons and three daughters who were killed when the wind of the Lord blew and the four corners of the house fell in on them as they were celebrating do I have any grand explanation for that? No, I don't. 
But somehow, some way, he was able to tear his robe, shave his head, and he worshiped. And he uttered one of the sweetest prayers that I think that we will find in Scripture. But this is not where Job will end. This is where he's starting. So at ground zero, Job is doing very well. He says something very important about the Lord and his sovereignty, doesn't he? He says, it is the Lord's to give and it is the Lord's to take away. But in all things, blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't understand that either. I don't, I don't understand how you do that unless you have been preparing for it. Unless you have been so steeped in the word of God that you know that that is what is true of him. And that what he's going to give you ultimately is greater than what you have right now. So Job is able to worship and he's able to respond in a way that rebukes Satan. Listen to what David Atkinson says in his commentary, The Message of Job. He says, Job is so absorbed by the sovereign action of God in giving and in taking away that there is a humble acceptance in blessing even the hand that has struck him. Would that we would learn to make that our first reaction to the crisis, to pray. Would that we would, when crisis comes upon us, that instead of screaming at God, going, where are you? Why has the toner run out in the printer? When I need my paper that I have procrastinated on and it's due in 30 minutes. I have uttered that in my <laughs> immaturity. But it gets, it's worse than that too, isn't it? We've said it under worse circumstances. Instead of praying, we go immediately to accusation if we're not careful. If we have not been steeped in who the Lord is, if we have not been before his throne on a regular basis, if we don't know that, the, that, that Christ opened the way for us to go before him and to receive all that we need in a time of trouble, both mercy and grace, amen? So how do you respond when suffering and evil encroaches upon your life? Do you respond with accusation? Are you quick to act as if you've been so righteous that you can't even imagine how something bad could happen to one as righteous and as blameless as you? How could this happen? I, I, I've been keeping my nose clean. I have gone to church at least once every six weeks. I mean, come on. Or do we turn in prayer? Do we immediately go boldly before the throne of grace because we know in the mystery of all that is that that is where the truth and that is where comfort is even if we can't comprehend the answer? Amen? Turn back to the text for the second test. Job 2, 1 through 10. Again, Satan's going to come before. He says, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came from among them and presented himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now, let, let me pause right there for a second. So is this, is this like some kind of goofy, like whoever was writing it really wasn't thinking about what they were doing and they're like, man, I mean, doesn't Satan already know who Job is? <laughs> Come on, haven't we done this once? Why do you think God would say, have you considered my servant Job? Because of the test he just passed. 
So now Satan is pushing back against Satan himself. And he's saying, Satan, I don't, I don't know if you were paying attention, bro, but uh, he didn't curse me and die. And so, so, so God is putting it back on saying, he says, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Listen to what he says. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And the way that it reads in the Hebrew, he says, you have incited me against him for nothing. Now, what's God saying? He's pushing it back on Satan and saying, you are the one who doesn't understand. You said that he fears me for nothing, but you have incited me against him for nothing because you did not get what you desired. And so he goes on. It says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery, being Job, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. So Satan has said, look, okay, all right. He won the first round. I get it. But let's attack him at his core, skin for skin. A man's idolatry is that he, he doesn't want to die. It's safety and security. He is scared to death. Let me attack him personally, and then let's see what he does. So the Lord says, okay. But the thing you can't take from him is the thing that defines him, and that is his life. So again, Satan is restrained and he comes hard after Job from the sole, can you think about this for a second? From the sole of his feet to the crown of his head, he's covered in these boils. So much so, have any of you ever scraped yourself with a pot sheared? I haven't either. That sounds bad. Especially if you have boils and they itch real bad and they're kind of, anyway, we won't go into all that. But it just, it's just a horrible situation as he sits in dust and ashes, a broken, broken man. Listen to how he responds. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Remember, she's been hurt too. She just lost 10 of her precious children and everything that her husband had. She has been cast into darkness as well. Let's not miss that. Let's not be hard on Job's wife who's not even named. You too might say the same thing under similar circumstances. If it would just relieve the suffering, if, it, if there was just one who could sacrifice and make it better for everybody, we'd take that, right? If there was just one who would die to make it all better for everyone. You see where I'm going with that? You Christians, you. All right, so she tells him to curse God and die, and he says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil in all this? Job did not sin with his lips. Notice how he even progresses in his understanding. This is not just about giving and taking away. He is now saying, we not only receive good, but we are to receive evil as well. Calamity, all that comes from the hand of the Lord. So far, Job sounds like he's doing amazing. And what I do want to notate is that Satan will not show up again in the book of Job. Thus, Satan essentially has been defeated. 
So why is Job not more than, why is Job more than two chapters? Why do we need 40 more chapters if, the, if, the, if it's already been won? Satan's defeated. Because God is not done. Because God is not done shaping Job into the man that he desires him to be. God is not done redeeming Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. God is not done making all things new. Listen at what William Henry Green says of this. He says, in order that we may properly appreciate the conduct of Job in his affliction, we must further take into account another consideration. Job went into his trial destitute of many of those firm supports and grounds of consolation which are now so plentifully supplied to suffering saints. That means he said he didn't have access to all the means of grace and all the stuff you guys do. We do. Remember that, right? I mean, he, he, had a, he didn't have the gospel. He didn't have Jesus. He didn't have a thousand books written on suffering. He didn't have uh, all of the means of grace that we have. It goes on to say, those revelations had not yet been made upon which the believer now so firmly rests his hope in times of deep distress. Truths which are as familiar to us as household words in his gracious disclosures of the gospel had never yet been clearly set before the minds of these men. Christian, notice that you have more at your fingertips to help you than Job did. And yet the song remains the same, that the thing that will sustain us is our devotion and our endurance and our perseverance in Christ alone. If Job, who had so little to comfort him, could do what he's doing, then how much more we who ought to be more faithful given all that we know. Is God's sovereignty and providence comforting to you? amid the inexplicable? Are you more concerned with him answering a question for which no words will bring comfort, by the way? Are there not just certain things for which words are not going to take away the pain? Like, if you've lost a significant loved one and somebody came up and said, hey, let me tell you why they died. And I think I've used this example before. If you were diagnosed with cancer, you would not want the doctor to come in the room and say, all right, let me give you the history of this melanoma. This melanoma was created in 1945. And he goes in this long explanation as to what the cancer is. Now, what do you want to hear from him? Can you cure it? Can you make it go away? Can you save me? That's the real question in the midst of suffering, isn't it? Why is meaningless? Especially when you cannot save yourself. So, as we go forward, we too must submit to the mystery and the sovereignty of God's providence, being so careful as we minister to one another that we don't use those things as clubs to beat down our suffering, but instead offering up what is truly redemptive, what is truly going to be the balm of Gilead, which is the person and work of Christ himself. What's so interesting is that many commentators speak of why, why Job because he was good. See, it is exactly his faith that makes all of this worse, by the way. If he had no faith at all, it wouldn't matter. But the fact that he has faith in a sovereign and good God, his suffering and his innocence makes him collide with that and say, what gives? How can these things all be true? And the same is true for you. 
See, if you didn't believe in a good and sovereign God, you wouldn't have to worry about suffering. Who cares? It's, it's just random. It's chaos. Or if, God's, if you believe in a, a malevolent God, you're really in trouble, by the way. But it's because we have faith in a good and sovereign and all-powerful God that suffering is the struggle. What I want you to also notice is how Job, who has prepared himself well, is sent into the wilderness of suffering in the same way. We have Christ. We have Christ who, remember, immediately after the Lord uttered these words in his baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Where did he go? He went to a bar mitzvah, right, or a party. No, no, no. Where was he driven out of the waters of baptism? He was driven into the wilderness so that Satan could find out, does Jesus fear God for nothing? Does Jesus care about you at all, God, when I can offer him everything that he should want? that I, Satan, want. So what's beautiful about this story is what it prepares us for long term in some respects. What's beautiful about this story is really that, that we, we have hope in it, true hope, hope that is sovereign. Because if, again, if God and Satan are on equal par, you're just, we're just cannon fodder caught in the middle. If God is less powerful than Satan, we're in real trouble. If God is not sovereign and all-powerful, I, I don't know what hope we have at all. So we should learn from this this morning that God is mysteriously sovereign over the evil and the suffering that befalls us, limiting it according to his will. Two, that a utilitarian relationship with God is not a true relationship and it places us in grave danger. If you don't wrestle with anything else today, please wrestle with why do you fear the Lord? Why do you love him? Seek what is in you that is mechanistic and utilitarian and retributive so that it may be purged in the work of the Spirit. Third, our first and ongoing response to suffering should be prayer and worship, seeking the comfort and the glory of the Lord. 